You're listening to the Eyes on Conservation podcast, episode 131. Welcome to the Eyes on Conservation podcast. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Today on the show, we are joined by Caitlin Spradley and Kat Cannell, two women who recently undertook a fascinating journey, all in the name of protecting endangered salmon. I'm joined now by these two amazing women who are going to share their story. Introduce yourselves. Okay, well, uh, my name's Caitlin. I'm 27. I'm originally from Texas. Um, pretty much, I think the most correct summation of who I am is just extreme outdoor enthusiast um, from a conservation, from a recreational, from all different aspects of what that means. Um, I grew up around horses. Um, they've kind of always been like this constant but shifting as far as what, what I do with horses growing up, uh, but I'm also pretty active um, as a climber and a fisherwoman. And, um, I race mountain bikes, et cetera, et cetera. I just really love being outside. Um, and that pretty much dictates how I live my life. Awesome. Um, she is awesome. She <laughs> 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 really is. Um, I'm Kat Cannell and I am, I'm a horse girl, a horse lover, and also love being outdoors. And I grew up in Stanley, Idaho, and always had horses on our ranch and just kind of took and morphed my love for horses trail riding and turned it into a long distance riding passion and um yeah did I miss anything I mean a lot you're pretty you do a lot of really cool things but that works (laughs) I'm a a photographer my husband and I are middle fork outfitters um I don't know. We just like being outside. It's good stuff. Awesome. Well, that's a good starting point. Let's talk about this recent voyage uh, that the two of you undertook. Um, I mean, maybe just give us an introduction to this. You know, what was this journey? What was the sort of purpose behind it? And what did it actually look like? Ever changing. (laughs) It's it's morphing. It still is. Or maybe you can start with like the inspiration. Like what, you know, where, what was, uh, where did the sort of seed of this idea come from? Yeah, so we, Kat already has kind of this ex- extensive experience as a long distance horseback rider. And so she'd spent last year, um, she did two really extensive trips, and I um, wasn't able to join her in either of those. But since she'd already like gathered this like back, this like back knowledge and experience of these trips, and she was like, well, you should do a long distance ride together, was kind of something that we kind of plotted. We'd done some shorter stuff, but we were like trying to kind of come up with this longer ride that we could do together. And, um, here in the the Sun Valley area, we had an extreme winter. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So much snow. Um, so we're sitting, um, in Kat's kitchen, ironically drinking wine, um, in like late October, early November. Can't remember. And there's snow everywhere. Um, and we're trying to cave. So, well, how can we, started riding the spring because both of our jobs dictate that we go in during this like slack season, not summer, not winter. And so we were like, we need to follow the snow melt back home. Let's start the ocean. Okay. So that transformed into, well, oh my goodness, let's follow the salmon run home. 
will do exactly what the salmon do, um, just a little off from what their timing is, which then transform into, okay, well, let's make this like a message for salmon. Like, let's turn this into a way that we can advocate for, um, for salmon as a whole, especially our Idaho salmon that travel this incredible distance over all of these in- insane obstacles to come back to where we live. So um, that's kind of like how the ride morphed into two girls drinking wine saying, let's go on this long horseback ride into let's make this journey into something that's more meaningful for all of humanity and the like more than just that. Yeah. And, and then it kind of morphed a little farther um, about a month before we left a coworker of mine at the Sun Valley Stables um, decided she wanted to join and we took her on and her name's MJ Wright. And unfortunately she can't be here right now because she's on her ranch in Nevada. But um, so Caitlin and I started the trip in Astoria, Oregon and MJ flew. She was in Iceland at the time and flew directly from Iceland to Portland and joined us. Her first day of the ride was through downtown Portland (laughs) with us. And um, that was pretty, that was a pretty epic day. So you had this, crazy, awesome, amazing idea. You decided you were going to act on it. Um, and there's this message behind it. Did you have like a plan for how you were going to get this message out or how you're going to sort of tell this, this story? Like two weeks before we left, we had a friend. Well, I, she wasn't a friend at the time, but like she's become one of our best friends. Um, we, I just kind of like knew of her called up this, this woman who does, women's films and she's like focusing on women in the outdoors her name is meredith richardson and she um immediately when i told her about what we were doing like dropped everything and totally passion project uh jumped on board and she got together a crew and pretty much the whole entire ride was documented um but as you know as a fellow filmmaker uh half the battle or like documenting documenting it and actually filming it is like minuscule compared to post-production and so now we have like this daunting post-production game that we're playing and um pretty much we're still trying to get our message out there we have made um stickers that we're kind of trying to make go viral uh make redfish red is what they say and they we kind of mocked them off of the make keep Tahoe blue stickers. Um, and we wanted to give Idaho its own kind of like keep Tahoe blue. Everybody in Idaho knows what Redfish Lake is. And um, but not many people understand like how devid- how how devastated it is. Like it's still beautiful and people are going there and enjoying their summers there. But like the lake is pretty much barren compared to what it used to be. And, um, so we're trying to teach people that. And so, so yeah, our, our message, like the way that we're getting, getting this message out there, first, the stickers, second, this film. And, um, when we were actually on the trail, the way we spread the message was, um, horses are like a huge attraction. Like you see a horse walking through downtown Portland and it's going to stop you in your tracks. Um, and just anywhere really like we were, we were you couldn't miss us. I mean, (laughs) there were seven horses and three women and we were riding down the side of roads. We were riding on dirt roads. We got to ride up the Selway in the back country, um, coming over into Idaho and, um, or into Montana, but down into the main is what I meant. And, um, pretty much like everywhere we went, people, you know, we were a magnet to be able to spread this message. Like if, 
we had done the same thing on bikes or on foot. Like nobody would have given us two glances. I mean, they're just been like, oh, people walking or people riding their bike. But seven horses and three women, that's a really good way to get some attention. Um, so, yeah, that was um, – but that – we only reached the people who saw us on the trip. And so now with this film, we're going to try to make a bigger splash. You chose the route based upon the actual route that salmon take to get from the ocean to Redfish Lake. But there must have been like quite a bit of planning that went into sort of deciding like how you were going to follow that route. Uh, I mean, was was it difficult to figure out, you know, how you were going to follow this, the journey of the salmon? Yes, it was really difficult. (laughs) (laughs) Um, We, so again, I'm just referring to kind of Kat's experience from her previous rides. She, um, have really had really mastered how to utilize Google maps of all things, um, to, on how to use the satellite images to try to find kind of like how we, cause you know, on horseback, we only travel three miles per hour, which means a really good day is anywhere between, I mean, an average day for us is between 20 and 25 miles a day. So we're not going very far every day. Um, but the logistics of finding a home for the night for seven horses and then <laughs> and three girls who are like, hi, can we camp, um, is challenging. And um, I will, you know, before I continue with that, I will say that of all of all the places where we were traveling through a lot of private property, um, tons of it, and there wasn't a lot of public land where we were, which required us to knock on a lot of doors. Um, to kind of facilitate us being able to rest in the evenings and give our horses like the food and rest that they needed in order to continue. And we were only turned away twice and we knocked on tons of doors. So the generosity of people was astounding um, and the hospitality that people extended to complete strangers and seven grass destroying beasts um, was incredible. Um, but back to the, the route, um, we, we did have kind of like a general plan, um, starting out, we actually had four, five, um, most of that deviation happening in Idaho, um, just because of the snowpack. And we, we also encountered some difficulties with snowpack that we weren't anticipating, um, just because of the differences in the snow line between our home and in Idaho and in Washington and Oregon. So pretty much what it came down to is we had two to three different downloaded GPSs, Google Maps being one of them, and we would try to isolate where we thought horse-friendly property would be within our mileage range, and we would just blindly hope for the best that those people would let us camp there for the most part. Um, And that came down. Kat's got this brilliant eye for spotting round pins, (laughs) which is uh, usually a good indication that there's horses around. Um, and, or at least had been in the past. And every so, time we saw a round pen, they said, yes, <laughs> like you zoom in on Google earth and it felt like such a creeper, like, <laughs> and then we like show up and these people are like, Oh yeah, we've got a round pen. We've got places in the back. And I want to be like, I know. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we were, we, we were scoping you out Pacific Northwest. We were looking at you at Google earth in great detail. <laughs> So yeah, Google Maps is like an incredible tool. Yeah, that's generally what we what we did for a thousand miles. Yeah, that's super interesting, right? I mean, like, I, kind of for two reasons. I mean, one, 
being your use of technology in order to sort of route find, I think is, is very interesting. Right. Um, but also, I mean, as you said, just the generosity of just random people who you guys, I mean, obviously they're not random. I mean, you're, you know, looking for evidence that, um, that, that they had horses or had in the past, right. Because there'd be more, they'd be more likely to say yes to you. But, but still, I mean, you know, every single day, every, you know, every single night to have to like, knock on someone's door who you don't know in order to like get permission to spend the night. Um, I mean that in and of itself is a, a super fascinating experience, you know, and, and, and I think specifically because your crew is undertaking this mission, this conservation mission, right. Which I think a lot of people would associate with maybe more liberal beliefs. Right. And you're, you know, walking through these very conservative areas, like, I, I guess I just wonder, like, what kind of conversations you had about, like, the mission behind this journey did you have with these folks who you met along the way? And, like, how did they respond to that? That was <clears throat> a really cool part of our journey that we did document. We got to get some interviews with some of these people. We got to film some of these conversations we had with these people. And it was, like, all over the charts from... The first place we stayed, um, we stayed with this vet and outside of Astoria and, um, he like was so passionate about saving these salmon that like he cried when he was talking to us about it. And we asked him what it would take to save, save the salmon. And he just like point blank, he was like a revolution. That's, that's what it'd take. And, um, that kind of set like the tone for our trip. Um, and then all the way to camping with, ranchers and farmers next to the Columbia and the Snake Rivers, um, especially on the Snake where the four dams are being targeted. Um, we definitely had some, we had some people make it very clear that like what their opinions were about the dams, but at the same time, they were so welcoming still. And like, they were so kind and they put us up and brought us beers and like, we're just really amazing people. And, um, and they knew that we were riding to save the salmon and really everybody had one thing in common, whether no matter what their stance was on the dams or on the, how to save the fish there, the one common theme is that people want to save them. People want to see them coming back. We didn't meet one person that was like, fuck them. You know, we like, every single person we met was on the same page of like, yeah, we need to figure something out to save them. And so that was kind of like our intention from the get go was we, we knew that we were going to be going through these different zones of like extreme liberal near Portland and then extreme conservative near the dams. And, um, and we weren't really affiliating with either side. We weren't affiliating with like our own opinions, really. What we were just trying to do was, bring people together and show them the common ground of like, we've all got the same thing at heart. So let's come together instead of like fight about it. That's, that's super awesome. You know, and I, I think that's something that is important for more people to recognize, right. Is that like, despite these sort of categories, you know, uh, that, that folks get put in sort of politically, <laughs> I was going to say when you talk to people face to face, but 
even better when you like approach them, you know, with a crew of horses and knock on their door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like, you know, they treat you with kindness and, and respect, you know, nine times out of 10. Um, yeah. Even if, you know, 90% of your beliefs are, are disparate, you know, I think that in and of itself, even separate of, you know, the sort of central message you were trying to convey about the salmon um, is, is a very important message for people all across the U.S. to, to know, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Maybe you can talk a little bit about what it was like to, to ride through Portland, right? I mean, to, to ride through like a big city. I want to let Caitlin answer this, but I have to say one of, so I haven't even told you this yet, um, but there was an uh, article done on us on Outside Online and um, this photographer, John Webster, took a picture and it's like, hands down my favorite picture of the entire trip and it's Caitlin in downtown Portland and there's like five or five or eight people next to a bus stop just staring at her <laughs> and like you see their backs and you see her she's on her horse and she's like staring back at them with like this what the fuck face at them and like she's like she's staring back at them with like why are you staring at me like kind of look and I just thought it was so funny because <laughs> It wasn't like, it wasn't like a big smile or like, Hey, or like spreading the word. It was like, what are you looking at? <laughs> you know what I'm I was about? giving them a sticker. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about though? That picture's so funny. Yes. I was trying to spread the message. <laughs> um, <laughs> but anyway, yes, it was Portland. <laughs> um, quite the experience. Um, we chose Portland on purpose. We, we had um, options of riding around Portland, but um, we felt like it would be really meaningful to reach a larger audience um, to ride right through that area um, because it is such a shock factor. I mean, we aren't just like, I mean, it's not like people in Portland are completely like they've not seen a horse before. I mean, there's mounted policemen. I mean, the, it's not that re insane, I feel like, but the fact that we have laden pack horses um, at the time we also had, um, additional riders with us for that day. So, I mean, we were, a, we were a full string of animals, um, riding through, um, downtown Portland. I remember riding past like glass cubicles. <laughs> Granted, it's like pouring rain. We've like, we have all this really nice rain gear, but we've been soaked in rain for so long that we've, we we've defaulted to, um, just anything. So we have ponchos on as well. And we rode past these glass cubicles. And I remember these people just like, they stopped. One of them dropped their pen and they all like, just slack jawed, just like, what? And we like rode by. And, um, cause we were like on a bridge and it was like a skyscraper. So they were like third floor. It's like something weird. And so like, we were like riding by like this third hey! floor, like office meeting. <laughs> And I mean, we, I mean, we rode our horses across like eight lanes of traffic. Um, we crossed huge bridges. Um, the Hawthorne bridge, the Hawthorne bridge, we rode across the Hawthorne bridge. And I mean, our horses killed it. I mean, for those that are listening that may are, may not be familiar with horses, like this is a huge undertaking for a horse. Um, just the stimulus involved with the lights and the noise and the people and the movement and, weird sounds it's it's big and they did so well um the only thing pungo my horse wasn't crazy about was the trolley cars or like the the electric bus the what is that called yeah trolleys right yeah, portland portlandiers call them 
trolleys. Okay, yeah. These trolley cars. <laughs> like, he, I think he could hear, like, this high-pitched whirring or something. And every time we came to the tracks, he was like, I don't know. <laughs> I'm not sure. But luckily, we, we must have just hit the lights right because we got green lights most of the way. We hit every green light on Salmon Street. So. <laughs> it was, it was uh, And the cool, I think it was kind of cool how we were able to, we went to the red on Salmon Street. So, um, red obviously being a huge part of our ride, R E D D. And, um, there's a place called the red on Salmon Street. So we were able to like ride our horses there. There's a parking lot that they could be safe, um, away from traffic. And we were able to answer questions and kind of hang out there before like making our exit out of Portland and, um, a memorable experience, yeah. one would say. One of the coolest <laughs> horseback riding days of my life. <laughs> it's so cool. Um, so, yeah, that was Portland. Yeah. Neat. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that, you know, riding through the, the big city was, sounds like it was definitely a highlight. I mean, tell me about another, like, important moment along the trip, right? Whether it was sort of, like, a high point or a low point, like, you know, what what else, like, really stands out? Either because it was super challenging or, like really amazing there's so many things oh man two come to mind okay you say your two and then i'll say one well a dollar and and then the other part the losing oh yeah <laughs> okay so I'll, I'll just do a quick rendition of what i feel like are two like big parts yeah those were big parts and then um so coming into hood river was um a particularly challenging part of the ride because we, um, because the snow was more than we expected. So we were actually forced, um, this is kind of surrounding Hood River area, but we were on highway 84 for a long time and, um, not an easy road to travel (laughs) along. Um, and we encountered some obstacles in that area, but ultimately where we ended up was in Hood River and we um, stayed with this super, super nice woman, Margot, um, in Hood River. And we were, Kat and MJ and I at the time had been bouncing around the idea of potentially um, adding another horse to our team um, for various reasons, um, having a rotating horse. Um, We had other horses that probably could use a break and um, we had at the time, the option of bringing in a mule from home um, to, to that we could use for the rest of the journey. So we'd already been having this conversation, and you know, we were talking with Margot, and she uh, owns an operation there, and she said that she'd recently sold a horse for a dollar. And Cat and I, we were standing next to each other, and I distinctly remember like turning, and we both like looked at each other, and we were like, "Cat's like, do you have another horse for a dollar?" <laughs> Um, and therefore, we purchased a horse for Dollar. Um, he's, he's now mine. Caitlin's um, horse, his name is Dollar. And he was named Dollar just for this uh, for this act. But, um, man, it was just, it was something. Just He needed to be vet checked. He needed to get shoes on. He needed all of this stuff needed to happen for us to travel across state borders. Um, so it was our one rest day. And we're, like, rushing this horse to the vet and, like, getting all of this stuff done. We know nothing about him. This is crazy. No one buys a horse for a dollar in the middle of nowhere when they have no access to a truck and trailer. This is stupid. But we did it. Yeah. And it was awesome. And he's, like, the coolest horse and ever. He, yeah, he turned in to be, like, a super cool horse. But we added a horse um, in route in Hood River. And that was a – and I, I still have him. He's, an, he's a really an, a cool, cool horse. Um and uh, another big thing that happened 
and I'll probably have Kat help me with this one, but we had just um, come back over Lost Trail Pass. And so we're getting, we're close to home at this point. For those of you that aren't familiar with the geographical location, we are about a week or so away. And so we're feeling it good. Like we feel the draw of home. We're in familiar territory. Um, we recognize this place. And uh, we wasn't a super great camping spot. And there wasn't a lot of feed available for the horses as far as like natural grasses. Um, it was a pretty cramped, small area. We use a electric fence at Ofer to house the horses overnight. And there was a lot of elk moving around, et cetera, et cetera. But long story short, um, we the horses got out that night because they spooked through the fence. So we lost seven horses in literally thousands and thousands of acres of wilderness. And um, that was, you know, people lose horses like that, packers at least, and uh, they lose them for months and they lose them into the winter and then never see them again. Like, so this is a, this is a really scary thing for us. And it happened at 8.30 at night and we were all like kind of in our sleeping bags, like watching the horses, like we should do something about this. <laughs> and uh, when they pushed through the fence, we all ran out in our underwear and chased them through the woods yeah. <laughs> in our flip-flops. And... Uh, it was just quite something. We ended up finding them um, 24 hours within later. 24 hours. And mm-hmm. so we had all seven horses recovered, no serious injuries. Um, everyone was fine. Albeit a little dehydrated, but that was a good adrenaline rush, yeah. especially because we were, we were smelling the barn. I would say within a week of being home, we, and then for something like you just as a good reminder, like you got to be on your toes all the time with horses. You can't you know, let your, or even on any adventure, you can't let your guard slide it. So, um, it was a good learning experience for all of us. And we've, I think we, at least I count that as like, I can say that I'm at least a halfway decent real packer now because I've lost horses and recovered them. I never want to do it again. It's checked (laughs) off. Type three fine. But, uh, we, I, I consider that like, a. I don't know. What do you call it? An that? accomplishment. I'm a mental, a mental point in your packing yeah. career. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's official. We're packers. <laughs> um, so for me, something that like that should be talked about is that like was a very big like uh, punctuation point for the trip was coming home and um People, people ask me like for months or like, I mean, people still ask me, like we walk around town and I, I mean, we can't go anywhere really without somebody being like, how was your ride? <sighs> did you camp every night? <laughs> did your butt hurt? How many showers did you take? <laughs> What'd you eat? Um, <laughs> can't go anywhere without people stopping us, which is fun. Um, but at the same time, um, I think that the hardest part about the trip was coming home. Like the, the hardest, hardest, hardest part was actually like coming back and like decompressing. And, um, we ended, it ended so abruptly. And, um, and that's something that I think gets kind of lost in expedition worlds. When people are talking about their expeditions is like, they'll tell the story of like what they did and then that's it. And it's like, really like this, this has had a lasting wave in our lives. And, um, the last 24 hours of our trip, we had a horse get injured. I got bucked off and I got injured in the last three freaking miles. I got bucked off. 
And, and then while we were at our final destination, the horses, um, three or four of the horses spooked and like teared apart a fence. And it was like all this like bad stuff happened like within the last 24 hours. And then we just like left and like went home and MJ went back to Nevada and Caitlin and I both went back to like busy work lives and it was like done. And, um, that was hands down the hardest part for me anyway. Um, and so yeah, I don't know. I, I guess like for me, like when I look back on the trip, like I think of it in so many amazing ways, but at the same time, it's like when people ask me what the hardest part was, that was, that was definitely it. I've done some long distance backpacking. Um, and, and I feel like it's, it's the same type of thing in the sense that over the course of months and months of time, you get used to this routine, which is very different than the, the normal routine uh, that you have for like your normal life and society right <laughs> um and there's a lot of like positive things about that new routine right um and then like you said all of a sudden the trip's over and it's like oh i have to go back to my to my real life now i can't just keep like walking you know <laughs> like <laughs> yeah it's weird it's like wait i'm supposed to be doing 25 miles today <laughs> you have like <laughs> panic about it yeah but um <clears throat> Yeah, so, but, like, a highlight, um, I don't know. I guess it was just all a highlight. Yeah, there were lots of, I mean, we could we could talk for, for hours, hours about yeah. how the, all of the, like, really amazing just experiences we had on this ride. So we won't bore you guys for, for all of that. Yeah. But it'll involve a lot of us laughing at each other. But, yeah. Um, yeah, it was truly it, for for us from a personal perspective. I think it was a truly growing experience. Um, you learn a lot about yourself. You learn a lot about. I mean, just this to care for a horse, much less seven, um, for that amount of time, and to keep them healthy consistently is is an extreme challenge. Um, and I think we all learned a lot about that. It's something you can spend a lifetime learning about. Um, but. And we also learned a lot about each other and, um, it's, it was truly like powerful. I think we, and you know, we also, I mean, the, I don't want to like list, bore you with like the list of learning, but like we learned a ton about salmon. Um, and that was part of our goal was to learn about the diverse impacts of this fish. And, um, you know, there's, a, there's, there are things being done and there's, a, there's also things that aren't being done and changes that can be made. Um, that would go a long way to save this. I mean, this fish impacts so much it, ecological, biologically, um, economically that there is so much spiritually. I mean, what we learn from people of how this fish has impacted them specifically or, um, their culture, generations of their own family, their livelihood was mind blowing. And to think that we are consistently, losing them year after year after year, um, is, is quite, it's devastating. Um, I had more than one occasion where I cried on behalf of salmon and steelhead on this trip because I was so moved. And I particularly, um, am passionate about this fish. Um, I've, I, I love learning about them and I'm just consistently blown away with the fact that something that is directly impacting 
the health of our planet, especially in the Pacific Northwest, and we're actively losing it, um, it, it disturbs me. And I hope in the end, the end goal of this, of this film, it, in, the six, in the event that we can get this film out, which is our biggest hope, that this will also move other people to do something about it, because that's what this ride was ultimately about. It was about starting, restarting, revamping a conversation that's been going on for a long time. Um, but getting that conversation to a point where there's actually action points of like what we can do to make this difference where humans can, you know, ultimately continue to have a wonderful life and have these um, livelihoods that are so dependent on many different ways of how we impact river systems and the oceans and fish and all this stuff, but also doing everything that we do in a more sustainable way to where we can also have salmon continue to be with us because once they're gone, they're gone. That's it. They're gone. And something to just add on top of that, um, something that a lot of people are ignorant about, um, myself included up until I learned this, um, and this was hammered into my head, um, is when we talk about salmon this year, like 2017, it's like, oh, we're having a bad year. And then next year the numbers are up and somebody's like, oh, we're having a great salmon year. Like the, the numbers are really returning this year. Like people have really like lost track of what a good salmon year means. We used to have millions of salmon coming up the Columbia and um, like Redfish Lake and the Salmon River were just chock full of them. Like, just so packed with salmon. And, um, and now when, when I hear people say, Oh, we, we're going to have 5,000 Chinook up this year. This, this is going to be a great year for salmon fishing. It's like, wait, wait, wait. Like there used to be like a close to a million of salmon of Chinook salmon and sockeye and steelhead and like coming up every year. We're to have 5,000 come back is not a good year. So, um, that's just something to keep in mind. Um, don't be fooled by the articles and the people saying we're having a good year. Like always, always be skeptical of that and um, know, know what good used to mean. Our paper here, um, our local paper here, and this was, this was about two weeks ago. So I can't speak a hundred percent to what the numbers are now, but two weeks ago, our paper reported that two sockeye salmon had made it through. Um, to Redfish Lake, which is where we are the end destination of our ride. And um, sockeye salmon in particular are the salmon that redfish got its name for. They are the ones that turn that bright red color um, during spawning. And, you know, the numbers of fish required to turn an entire lake red is, that's a massive number. And not in, granted, the entire lake, but a large portion of the lake. The reason it's named redfish is because it turned red. And two fish... I mean, that's nothing. Yeah. <laughs> Literally nothing. It's pretty much zero in the scam of like in the scheme of percentages. So um, it's a problem. Yeah. So I wonder if you guys, I mean, did, did you have sort of planned stops along the way to like help teach you guys like about some of this stuff? I, you know, I'm, I guess I'm wondering like how you were sort of receive, receiving some of this information about salmon um, that you were learning as you went along your journey? We partnered with IRU and um, that's Idaho Rivers United. Really amazing organization trying to save 
um, Idaho's rivers and salmon being part of that. Um, and they taught us a lot. Uh, we also learned from um, a variety of different people, from people who it's just their livelihood, like um, some tribal members uh, of different tribes along the Columbia. Um, we learned from a Coast Guard uh what was his position? He was a marine biologist for the Coast Guard. And he um, taught us a lot about like what commercial fishing looks like and how that's affecting it. We talked to people at the dams. We stopped at the dams um, on the snake. And we talked to people who um, were in charge of the juvenile fish coming downstream. Um, we, we talked to um, a uh, elementary school and we learned from some awesome kids in Lewiston like we were telling them about what we were doing and they were also fully immersed in learning about the salmon through their school at that current time so it was like really perfect timing we got to learn some cool facts from them um, we really just like kind of opened ourselves up to take in as much information as possible all while um, being you know objective and um, checking our facts and making sure, you know, and, and admitting all along, like we're not the professionals, we're not the pros. We're just here to help them out. We're here to be a microphone for the people who really know what they're talking about. Yeah. We just, so to answer your question, like we, we also use or not answer it, but answer it again or more fully, I guess, is we schedule the interviews or the film crew scheduled interviews with folks from all, I mean, as you can imagine, like the differences in voices of folks as we progressed in our journey from, you know, farmers and ranchers to fishermen and all of these all actual es experts in the field. This was all caught. They all were interviewed and um, pretty amazing um, conversations from the recreational um, fisherman who like has this deep connection to salmon just based off of a fishing relationship with his grandfather to people who are, I don't know, farming and ranching outside of Lewiston. I mean, there's just such a diverse um, scheme of people who spoke about how salmon impact their lives and the river impacts their lives. So we, uh, we definitely incorporated that in a huge way to our overall journey is like learning about everyone's perspective on this but like Kat said still we we just want to be a microphone for salmon in particular not necessarily a specific opinion but just we want salmon to survive so let's find a solution so that brings me to my next question which is you know what is the sort of action message you know like how can people save salmon, you know, like, uh, because it's, it's not an easy question to answer, you know? Um, it's not an easy answer for sure. Um, and honestly, um, it's not going to be regulating commercial fishing. It's not going to be taking out dams. It's not going to be, um, attacking native Americans for overfishing or plucking them out of the stream. Like it's none of that. Like, really what this comes down to is people need to get passionate and they need to stay passionate. And our problem is in society, people tend to not get engaged and not, uh, not stand up for, for things more than like going to the store and buying their groceries and typing on their iPhone and, 
you know, people are kind of getting lost in society and forgetting to be, to, to get passionate and do something about the world around them. And so my, my answer when people have asked me that is like, get involved with RU. Don't just donate to them once and walk away and be like, whew, did my part. Like get involved, uh, donate to them when you can go to their events when you can sign petitions when they have petitions to be signed, go to rallies and really just get involved and stay involved. It's not just a one, one click of the button. Okay. I've done my part and then walk away and like go continue with life. It's like, no, you've got to get passionate and stay passionate. And, and, um, and it's kind of daunting and it goes back to doc, the guy we stayed with in Astoria. He said like, what we need to save the salmon is a revolution and a revolution isn't just sitting on your computer and clicking a button. A revolution is like getting passionate and staying passionate. And, um, so yeah, it's not, it's not an easy thing. That's not an easy way for people to save the salmon. It's, it's hard. It's going to, this is not an easy topic. It's going to be hard. And then Caitlin, um, she has, you probably have an answer like about, politics and right mm-hmm. is is that where you were gonna go mm-hmm. gosh i know you so well i'm gonna let you take over with that <laughs> <laughs> so there's so many things that are pressing from a political nature you know where we are in time right now but it, all of this unfortunately it it comes down to politics and we as the body of people making up the voice of this nation we have to be involved politically and um, there's a lot of calls to, you know, write your representatives, go to city, go to your city meetings, go to your county meetings, go to go to things that where your voice can be heard. And no one wants to do that. It's not on the top of anyone's priority list. But in order for change to be made on top of uh, as a part of being passionate and staying passionate, you have to stay politically involved. And that doesn't mean writing your representative one time again, like you, you donate once you write your representative and like, check, check, I'm done for, you know, at least five years. It's consistent. I write once a week. (laughs) And I think that in order for change to actually be made, it's going to have to come from a political side of things. And it's not, if you can't expect anything to happen, if you're doing nothing and it's intimidating to a lot of people and it's scary. And you think, well, what can one person do? Well, it's not one person. It's it's a lot of people. And so if a lot of people write, get involved, donate to the right places because money does speak, but not just money, it's your time. It's like what what you can give, please give because um, money, time, passion, a really well put Facebook, social media post, um, getting involved with the right organizations and speaking up for them and being like, this matters to me, matters to all of us too. So um, just be involved as you possibly can. And it takes effort, but nothing's going to change without effort. Another way that people could help is by donating to our film. Um, we are going to make a big splash. We're going to, we're going to be that big exclamation point for people to like, look. And so if people wanted to get involved with what we're doing, um, we have a huge amount of money to still raise for post-production and um, we have a GoFundMe, uh, which is linked on if people visit rideforred.org, ride for red being uh, red with two Ds. And, um, and that's another way for people to like get immediately involved with what we're doing and then watching the film, enjoying the film and sharing it once it comes out. 
Awesome. Fantastic. Yeah. And I can, I'll, I'll definitely share those links, um, on our show notes page so that folks can check that out. Awesome. Um, you know, the last question I have for you guys is just, you know, what's next? Do, um, uh, you, you know, I can, I can only imagine that this journey has inspired ideas for future journeys. Yeah. Kaylin's really inspired me. I'm, I'm a completely different person. I don't know, um, what happened there wasn't, I guess, one specific moment, but I'm just, I just feel like a different human being than, than when before this trip, Galen's totally inspired me to start learning how to climb. Yeah. (laughs) And so I've been doing that, um, recently, not, um, I'm no, I'm no quick learner by any means, but I'm having a lot of fun doing it. And so, um, next we're hoping to start doing some horse packing, mountaineering, combo trips and um get out into some different mountain ranges and and climb some mountains and and have our horses waiting at the base for us when we get back (laughs) stuff like that but we have a couple in specifics uh uh, one being caitlin's brain baby of the john muir and climbing whitney at the end um have a lot of fun doing that and um I don't know. I, who knows? Like there's a chance that I might just hop on my horse at some point and just start riding and never come back. <laughs> Everyone laughs like that's like a joke, but it's actually <laughs> real. Like that could happen. <sighs> I've got her tracking device. I'll know how to find her. <laughs> awesome. I love that. Well, thanks a lot um, for taking the time to chat with me guys. It was it's a lot of fun to to learn about this really unique and amazing journey that you took um, and super cool to hear about like the learning experience along the way and how you guys are sort of crafting this message to teach people about salmon. Uh, super cool stuff. So thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for helping us spread the word. Um, yeah, it means a lot for for people to get involved and, and use your your social media format to get us out there so really appreciate it all right that was caitlin spradley and kat cannell two participants of the ride for red you can learn more about this fascinating story at rideforred.org or by heading over to the show notes page for this episode which you'll find at wildlensinc.org slash eoc 131 If you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, you can subscribe to the show via iTunes or the podcatcher of your choice. You can also leave us a review on iTunes if you're feeling particularly gracious and want to help others discover the show. Just search for Eyes on Conservation in the iTunes store or follow the link on the show notes page. The Eyes on Conservation podcast is a production of Wild Lens. Today's episode was produced by myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Our theme music is by The Humidors. <laughs> <laughs>